We're going to continue our study of Acts chapter 5 this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare to do that. Gracious God, you have existed in triunity from before time. You created all things. Everything is from you and for you. So God, we thank you for making us in your image to enjoy you and to exercise dominion over your creation. Because of our sin and our sin nature, God, and our ongoing rebellion, we thank you for the gift of new birth by saving faith in Jesus Christ, who is both Messiah and Lord. We worship you because you alone are worthy and because you have seen fit to favor us with your great love and mercy. So teach our hearts today to fear you and to worship you more. Amen. Does it ever feel like God is distant? Do you ever doubt whether God is really in control of everything? Does God truly care for you? Does he really answer prayer? Will God really work out all things according to his perfect plan? And do you trust in his goodness? The reason God has given us the Bible is so that we may have written proof, which we can turn to again and again to know for certain that God is active and that God is accessible through humble faith in Jesus Christ. We have proof that God is faithful and providentially working in all things, proof that he cares for you, proof that he watches over his people, and proof that he wants to use surrendered hearts to spread the message of his glory and his goodness. So as we return to our study in Acts, we find God at work through and on behalf of the apostles and the growing church in Jerusalem. He has not left them alone. He is, in fact, answering their prayer that they asked to be used by him to draw attention to the gospel, and, and God is answering their prayer by empowering them to boldly and clearly proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. And he is providentially working even through opposition and persecution, teaching the believers to trust him more. So we're picking up where we left off in Acts chapter 5, just after God dealt swiftly and severely with the first internal threat to the unity and the mission of the church, and that was the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. That ended with a second statement that great fear came upon first the whole church, and great fear came upon all who heard of these things. So from there, we continue in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And yet more, in, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that 
They even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. As we said, this section provides a direct answer to their prayers from chapter 4, verse 29 and 30. And they prayed, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In fact, the whole section we're looking at today serves to reveal God answering these two requests that they prayed according to his will. For boldness under pressure, which we'll get to at verses 17 and following, and also for God to stretch out his hand to perform miracles that would draw attention to the message of repentance and forgiveness in Jesus. Notice that God here stretches out his hand by working through the hands of the apostles. While our experiences of God working will not always be quite so dramatic, it's still the case that God is working through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we think about that, we must take the balance of Scripture and not presume the ministry of the apostles in Acts to be normative for all stages of the Lord's development of his church. However, we also shouldn't assume that God can't or doesn't perform miracles at times or any time when he sees fit to do so in answer to the prayers of his saints. But here in the early chapters of Acts, God was performing through the apostles, what amounted to be very public healing miracles. The verses tell us the church continues to gather at Solomon's portico, which was a portion of the the roofed colonnade around the outer courts of the temple. This is a very prominent and public location. We also hear in verses 15 and 16 the degree to which The news of this all has spread. People are bringing sick and demon-possessed from towns all around Jerusalem, and they're being healed. They're even laying the sick on cots and mats in the streets to see if just Peter's shadow might touch them and heal them. I'll say, though, this is probably an explanation of how things rose to the level of superstition because of how prominent all this had become, It is actually possible that the Lord chose to heal these people because of their faith that God had given Peter such power to do so. But secondly, besides these very public healing miracles, we recognize God's presence and power and it leading to different reactions among the people. After what happens with Ananias and Sapphira, some people seem to be very afraid, and they keep their distance. Even though they have high respect for the apostles in the growing church, verse 13, they're keeping their distance. So these might be people who are not yet ready to fully commit to Jesus. But even so, some are becoming true believers, in large numbers, in fact, multitudes of both men and women, as God enables them to get past this fear, and they are being added to the Lord, verse 14. 
Still, those aren't the only reactions. The apostles are also met with anger and jealousy from among the religious establishment, which we see in the following section, verses 17 to 26. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees in particular, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. Verse 23, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people." What's taking place is that those who hold religious power in Israel, which at this time was the party of the Sadducees, are particularly angered and threatened by the rising popularity and influence of the followers of Jesus, of whom the party of the Sadducees, of whom the high priest was one. And the high priest mentioned here could refer to either Annas, the former high priest who's so influential, as we've said, or his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the current high priest. They're therefore seeking to suppress the impact of this new movement. But Luke reveals not only their motivation of jealousy, but also that they find themselves on the wrong side because God is watching over his people at all times, including times of persecution. Maybe you remember that the first arrest that took place earlier in Acts was only Peter and John. But now all of the apostles are evidently imprisoned. So this marks an escalation in the opposition to the apostles in this new way of Jesus Christ. But so that they are not discouraged and silenced, God sends an angelic messenger to release them from their imprisonment that very night and to tell them to go right back where they were in the temple and to speak to all the people the words of this life. And the words of this life, I believe, clearly references the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the only way of salvation and means to eternal life. You can remind yourself of Jesus being the light and the life if you'll go back to the introduction to John's gospel or go back to the way that John begins 1 John. But the apostles then enter the temple at daybreak, and they do exactly what they were told They teach again. And now I imagine the situation becoming humorous, especially if you're an angel. I wish we could see the invisible angelic scene here. While angels are not omnipresent like God, the Bible does not seem to, I'm sorry, the Bible does seem to indicate that they're able to observe the, the affairs of men. 
Can you not imagine this first angelic messenger telling some of the others, guys, you have to come watch this now. They're sending for the prisoners that they'll be brought to them. And the high priest has already gathered all the leaders, the whole council, the Sanhedrin, and possibly some additional community leaders in society, unless by the word senate there, it just means the same group still, the council, the Sanhedrin. But he has gathered all of the leaders there in Jerusalem. But the officers are sent to go to the prison, and they come back with this report. Um... We discovered the prison doors and the prison guards to be in good working order, but the prisoners themselves were nowhere to be found. As we say, the captain of the temple and the chief priests were left scratching their heads to try to figure out what, this, what could possibly have happened. What does this mean? And just then, another person comes and tells them where to find their missing prisoners, They're standing in the temple and teaching the people. You know where you found them when you arrested them? That's where they are, and they're doing the same thing you arrested them for. When they send for them again, they're smart enough, selfishly, to not take them by force because they fear an uprising from the people that might lead to their own stoning, which means that they must just ask the apostles to come and and the apostles comply. But the religious leaders are too hard-hearted to realize the miraculously empty jail should give them a hint about whose side God is on. God is directing and protecting these apostles. And we'll find out that only the prominent rabbi and Pharisee Gamaliel will be wise enough to at least consider the possibility that God is with them. What we should take away from this paragraph then is that We know God is watching over us at all times. In the very specific situation that you are facing today, God is watching over and caring for you. And God is able to deliver from any and every situation as he sees fit. So as long as you remain in that situation, it is God's will for you. You can trust that he is caring for you. So we receive whatever comes as his will for us, accepting his timing and his way of doing what he knows is best. As we continue, we see the apostles doing This very thing, entrusting themselves to God and obeying him to be bold and clear with the gospel. At verse 27, we see, and when they had brought them, when the council had brought them, they set them before them, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Is it actually accurate that they intend to bring this man's blood upon us? No. They demanded that Jesus be crucified. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. 
the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader or prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. From the example of the apostles, we learn that God wants his people to trust and obey him, proclaiming the gospel with clarity. And this they do under serious threat to their very lives. The high priest begins with, we warned you guys to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. But instead of doing that, instead of that slowing you down at all, you filled the whole city with this teaching about Jesus. Add to this that in your teaching, we come off as being guilty of his death. Peter sure has grown in sanctification with the presence of the Holy Spirit because he is self-controlled and bold in his answer. And then evidently the other apostles must give assent to what he says here, or, or they repeat something very similar when asked if they are all in agreement. Last time, Peter and John had said in chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, when they were asked, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So this answer here in chapter 5 is similar, but they emphasize obedience to God and they emphasize the gospel. Additionally, Peter calls Jesus the prince and savior. You've heard that word already in Peter's description of Jesus. It means leader or prince. It can mean initiator or founder, but here it likely means ruler of highest authority. Jesus is the ruler of highest authority. And Peter adds that he's the Savior. The very one whom you sought to kill, God raised to life and exalted, so that his death and resurrection would in fact provide opportunity for repentance and forgiveness of sin. And Peter mentions Israel specifically, probably not just because this is his audience, but to highlight that rather than this preaching being a threat to Israel, Jesus is, in fact, means of true restoration, means of true obedience to God, which would, in fact, bring blessing to the whole nation. After all, he's speaking to the nation's leaders. If they would submit to and obey Jesus, if they would repent to receive forgiveness and be restored to God, that would be a blessing to all Israel, this nation that, by and large, rejected their Messiah and Lord. In fact, Peter says, the miraculous things that are happening is because the power of the Holy Spirit is testifying to the truth of this message. And it's coming through us, the apostles, precisely because we ourselves are personal witnesses to the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And it's coming through us because we're obeying God by continuing to declare the truth about him. That's exactly what's happening. That's what you're experiencing. That's what all of Jerusalem is seeing. 
And even as we will say, we will see and say again and again in this book of Acts, we too have been given the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus. And we too are commissioned to proclaim the gospel boldly and clearly. By that very obedience, the power of God is displayed in us. Because everything that Peter says is true, and because the leaders remain hard-hearted, we're not surprised by their response. Verses 33 to 40, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But God intervenes in another way. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And then he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing." After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. But he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is from man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. In spite of their frantic anger and their murderous desire, God intervenes through the wisdom he provides to one member among them. I believe Luke includes the details of this to show that Although Gamaliel speaks even truer than, than he knows, it is the case that God is on the side of his church and his will is sure to prevail. Like his grandfather Hillel, Gamaliel is a well-known and influential rabbi from the party of the Pharisees. The Pharisees don't currently hold the primary power, but the Pharisees are more well-liked by the people because their piety seems more sincere, and it probably is. Gamaliel's most infamous student becomes Saul of Tarsus, infamous to us when he is persecuting the church, and no doubt infamous to them when he's converted, to Christ, converted by Christ and becomes a bold witness for Jesus, not only to the Jews, but especially among the Gentiles. But Gamaliel clearly here exercises wisdom, even though he himself isn't ready to submit to this teaching concerning Jesus. That doesn't change that God is the source of wisdom. I thought I'd just show you this verse from the Old Testament in Proverbs, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. When we see people in the world, even who are not of Christ, are not in Christ, when they exercise good wisdom, that wisdom is from God. 
So the wise point of view that Gamaliel speaks of looks like this back in our text in Acts chapter 5, which Luke would argue is appropriate for anyone looking upon the church as a threat. Here's how the argument flows. Other rebellious movements die out shortly after their leader dies because they were not truly from God, and so their followers scatter. Gamaliel gives a couple of historical examples in chapter 36, I mean in verse 36 and in verse 37. So what he recommends is that in the present case, they should leave the Jesus followers alone and not resort to killing them and risk a greater uprising among the people. Because if this movement is merely rebellious and not from God, it will die out on its own because Jesus is gone. But if this thing is in fact from God, Gamaliel says, you won't be able to succeed in overthrowing it, and you will find yourselves opposing God. What Luke wants his reader to see is that Gamaliel is absolutely right, and that the latter is the case because Jesus isn't dead. Jesus is alive. Jesus is reigning just as Peter and the apostles are saying. He is in fact Lord and Messiah and nothing will be able to stop the spread of this movement because it's God's will. That's the exact reason we're gathering in the name of Jesus nearly 2,000 years later. Because this gospel is from God and Christ is building his church. And the will of God is sure to prevail. God uses this bit of wisdom from Gamaliel to deliver the apostles at this time, but not without a beating first, a scourging. The text doesn't say whether this was the maximum sentence of stripes, which was commonly 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashings. Deuteronomy 25.3 prevented them from going over 40, so it was custom to stick with 39 in order to be safe, so they whipped them in groups of three. The lashing consisted of striking the the victim's bare skin with a, a triple strip of calf's hide. The victim received two blows to the back, then one to the chest, perhaps as many as 39 times. Really, no matter how many the number was, it was severe. And it was intended to strongly discourage any further disobedience to their command. Stop preaching Christ. It didn't work. It doesn't work. Because Jesus is alive, (laughs) and the Holy Spirit, whom he has given, is in his people. You can't stop them by persecuting them. You can't even stop us by killing us. You can't cut off a head that is the eternal Godhead 
<laughs> who is reigning on high and always will complete his perfect will. God is on the side of his church. Look at how it doesn't work, verses 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ, or the Christ is Jesus. Doesn't this passage overall that we've looked at this morning just encourage you to trust God more? And doesn't this ending in particular challenge you to rejoice in the Lord and desire to obey him by declaring his goodness to others? No matter what it is that I'm facing, God is good. When we rest in God's work, in his watchful care, we rest in God's will, we can rejoice in suffering like Christ, becoming only more emboldened in gospel proclamation. To be whipped for wrongdoing by the highest Jewish religious court in the land would normally be cause for shame, for dishonor. But that dishonorable treatment, when viewed as clear evidence of rightly following Jesus, as clear evidence of telling the truth about who he is, as clear evidence of being counted as worthy, honorable in the sight of God, is cause for great joy. So rather than being shamed into submission, they're in fact only more motivated to be faithful in teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ, both publicly at the temple and from house to house. So rather than being Rather than us cowering in fear when oppressed for following and obeying Jesus, we instead pray and plan to continue to obey God's command, that we teach Christ in public, and we teach Christ in private, leaving the care and the consequences in the hands of God, who is sure to deliver us in the way that counts most. Again, as we said, they may even kill this body, but our souls, which will live on eternally, belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray again as the praise team returns to lead us in a closing song. Triune God, you alone are perfect in your essence. You alone are perfect in your power. So we trust in you, we love you, and we commit ourselves again to obeying you. Thank you for your watchful care over your church, and thank you for working in us and through us to draw attention to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because of our confidence that your perfect plan is sure to prevail, help us to rejoice in our trials and suffering. Looking to Jesus as our model for contentment and our model for trust in you. Looking to Jesus as our model of sacrificial love and commitment to the mission of knowing you more and making you known. We trust you to do this in us by your grace and for your own glory. Amen.